live for those moments of worship where we can express to him, uh, reflect back to him all that he's expressed to us. It's really good to be here again today and to be able to share. This is Mission Fest, and uh, just want to remind you that uh, we do this talk back thing at 11 o'clock as soon as the service is over. Um, Anybody wants to meet in Century, uh, we'll do that. You can bring your lunch in. If you can come at 12, that's great too. Uh, We'll have a team of people there. And it's great to be a part of a team. And uh, I just want to, again, acknowledge my team that's here on the front row. If you guys don't mind standing up, and uh, they're here to serve any way they can. But you know what? There's a whole bunch of other teams. Yeah. There's some other teams here that are representing other organizations. If you're one of the representative teams, would you guys stand up here today? Would you just, I don't know where you are, but with different groups, OMS, and up over here. And... Let me just tell you, the, the applause is nice, but what they'd really like to do is meet with you. Uh, so they're, they're got, they've got booths over in the common area, and I would encourage you to take time to, to further the conversations that God's already having with you, uh, with people who can help you to process that conversation. And so just want to encourage that. It is great to be part of a team. I love the Lego movie. Everything is awesome when you're part of a team, right? And uh, I get to be a part of a team around the world. And one of the people that I get to be a teammates with is Alejandro Cecilia, who is our pastor in Mexico City. He's a church planter. They're planting another church, getting ready to launch some churches. He and I leave today to go to Lebanon, where we're working uh, with a group we've never worked with before. Some of the Syrian refugees have been coming to Christ. In fact, hundreds of them have been coming to Christ. They're inside of Lebanon, and there's uh, about 80 organizations that are working with that group, but nobody's church planting. They're doing evangelism. They're doing development. They're doing a whole bunch of relief efforts, but nobody's planting churches, and they've invited us to come and say, you want to chat about this because we believe that, that, that one day Syria will open back up. People will go home, and if they take not just... Jesus Christ with them, but the church with them, it could make a profound difference. And so, uh, you know, we just sang about, you know, captured by your story, catch me up in your story. And I've asked Alejandro if he would to share a little bit of his story, because I think it fits so well with what we're going to talk about today. Hola, buenos dias. I'll translate. He just yes. said, hello, good morning. Um, <laughs> that's as far as I can go. Okay. Thanks so much. My name is Alejandro. I'm currently pastoring a church in Mexico City. I was born in that city many years ago when we only have 12 million people in the city. And uh, when I was really young, my parents got divorced and I was moved with my parents, uh, with my father, to the northern part of the country in a really nice town, small town uh, by the sea where I get to know a lot of friends. And uh, even though I didn't knew Jesus, it was a really nice town just to get out of that jungle giant jungle with 12 million people. It was, it was nice. Well, Jesus came to my life when I was 17 years of age, and he just turned my life around the other, the other way. I, uh, since I have known him, uh, I couldn't think of any other reason to live because he's my reason to live. After a while, um, God called me to ministry, and uh, uh, while we were preparing in ministry and seminar, God began to turn our hearts back towards Mexico City. But it was, I told you, a place that I didn't want to go back. Now we have 23 million people in the city. And um, so after a few years, after we we were preparing to serve him, God sent our heart back to Mexico City. And then after that, we just follow our heart and go back there to Mexico City to serve. 
So it's been a pleasure just being there where God's heart is because his heart is always where the people is. But it was hard to leave our friends, to leave our family, to leave our church, to go back to this jungle that we didn't want to go. But what God did is that he sent our hearts first, first there to the city. And that after that, it was easy to go there. So we're pastoring a church there with, um, that is growing. We're helping people understand their place in God's story, uh, even in their jobs and, and what they're doing. And I will invite you to consider what God's trying to do with you because uh, in my case, it all started when I was sitting in my church. I was sitting there listening to the pastor and hearing how God keeps working in the lives of people. And it was really exciting just to think on the idea to be part of that story. But it, it all starts in a place like where you are right now. And we have a pleasure of being serving the church for 18 years there in Mexico City. And we, we don't know where God, God is going to lead us. We're really open to that. Thanks for letting me carry. Yeah, thanks so much. Thank you. I shared on Monday three big reflections, and I want to share those again, because the first one is that God is always on mission, and it reminds me again as I listened to Alex's story this morning that he said, you know, God put our hearts in Mexico City. We had to join our hearts because God's heart was for Mexico City, and he needed somebody who would go there and respond to it. The second thing is a simple reflection is God already knows. There are no surprises. In fact, some of you might be surprised a little bit by what he says to you today, but as you sit back It'll sort of make sense all of a sudden with other things that he's been doing in your life, communicating to you, whether you've been sensitive to it or not. And that's the third reflection, is this, that God is engaged in conversation. My oldest daughter, my favorite daughter, unless the other two are around, um, is in Christchurch, New Zealand with her husband, who's Australian. They started a church there uh, called The Well. And uh, they moved there. It's a very secularized city. Many of you would know that Christ Church was uh, beaten down by earthquakes, uh, three in a row that were so significant. A lot of people died. It destroyed the center of the city. And uh, they went right after that and started a church and started reaching out to people who were totally lost. Interesting, when the earthquakes hit, nobody ran to churches. You know, in, in our country, 9-11 comes, and everybody runs to the church to go to prayer meetings and things like that. Nobody showed up at the churches. In fact, the pastors were sort of ready for this because everybody was so in shock, and nobody came because they didn't think we'd go to church. Well, they started reaching out in the community. My daughter's a social worker trained here at the school, and, and, uh, and she found out that there was a super high suicide rate. In fact, New Zealand, believe it or not, number one in the world for suicide, and she just couldn't get over that, started doing some investigating, discovered that there was no support group for anybody who'd come through that kind of experience. And so she's a social worker, she's done support groups, never done anything with suicide, but decided she'd start a group, so she didn't. A dozen people showed up the first week. One of those was a girl named Teresa, and Teresa had had a boyfriend, a live-in, companion, partner, they call it down there, uh, who had 18 months before that had committed suicide, totally shocking to her, never a trace of, uh, she could never pick, put the story together, even in the past, to say, oh, I saw markers I missed. And she started coming to church, wasn't a Christ follower, uh, but came pretty consistently, like 
kind of the spirit and the experience of it and just felt a goodness about being there and stuff. People were sharing to her, with her, reaching out to her. I had the opportunity to preach there one Sunday morning, and I preached a message of how you could know Christ. And afterwards, we set up some stations where people could go around and take communion, write down prayer and, and praise kind of things and stuff like that. But there was also a little place where you could go to a sand tray and you could confess sins and then wipe that out because you know that the Lord wipes away our sins. And so people could do that. And, and so service closed. People were kind of doing these stations. And and as the service was kind of winding down completely over, I saw Teresa towards the back, and she looked at me, and I looked at her, and it's obvious she wanted to talk. And she said, you know, I, I uh, wasn't sure what to do with that whole thing of walking around. And so I stood back here for a few minutes. And then she said, God, I think it was God. That's what she said. I think it was God. Said to me, go over to the sand and write my partner's name in the sand and wipe it away. She said, I didn't want to do that. I just couldn't let him go because that's what I felt like. God, I, I think it was God. She's telling me this. She said, after a few minutes, I went over and I, I just wrote his name in the sand. And then I wiped it away. And for the first time in 18 months, I've, I felt a lifting, kind of a freedom. She still has not come to Christ. My wife was there recently, and she went up to her, and she said, I, I want to tell you, I had an answer to prayer. She said, I've only prayed three prayers in my life, and God's answered all three of them, and I just had another one. <laughs> but how awesome that the God of the universe would speak to Teresa at the very point of her need and set her free from the most devastating thing maybe anyone could ever experience. There is a God who's in conversation and I'm finding more and more that people who don't know him long to hear his voice even more than sometimes we do. He loves to speak to people. And I believe, again, for this slice of a moment that we have, that he's already been speaking to you, that the Holy Spirit will speak in this moment, and that he'll continue the conversation. And I want to, again, encourage you to say yes to whatever he says. I don't know what that's going to be. I have no idea. But I know the Holy Spirit is faithful, and he will speak. And so let's look into his word. I want to talk today about radical risk. I want to talk about faith, which is always the place that I think we struggle, because down deep within, we want to have great faith, but we live with realities. We want to step out, but we're a little bit afraid. We, we wonder if we'll really make it, and we have all these things that hold us back. And I want us to not just talk about faith. I want us to look at a story of faith, and it's in 1 Samuel 14. The verses are going to be on the screen up here. It's the story of Jonathan, uh, who's Saul's son. He's the prince of, 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 of Israel, and uh, what happens in his life. Now, let me set the story really quick. They're, they're under the control of the Philistines. They're slaves right now. Saul is king, started off pretty good. You know, he's head and shoulders taller than anybody else and, and has some victories, but then eventually starts worrying about what people think, taking things in his own hands. Samuel, the prophet, has just visited him, and, and Samuel's been doing his own worship deals and his own things, and, and God's written him off. God's going to find a new king, and Samuel makes it really clear. The Philistines enslave them. In fact, one of the things they do, it says in chapter 13, they take away all their weapons. 
There's only two swords in the entire army of Israel. Saul the king has one. Jonathan has one. Everybody else is weaponless. And the Philistines, as you come to this passage, are surrounding the Israelites. They only have two swords, and it's pretty bad times. In fact, it says that people are hiding in the ground. Some of the people have even defected over to the Philistine side because they want to be on the winning side. Like, who wants to be with the losers? You want to go into battle with no weapons? Like, you know, here we are. So at least on the other side, you get a sword, you know. So, so here's the story. Verse 1, one day Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his young armor bearer, come on, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. How many of you know that sometimes it's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission? It's not supposed to be a lifestyle. Just know this is true sometimes, right? Because he didn't tell his dad. Because what would his dad say? You're not going over there. You're not going to go fight the Philistines. Wait, we've got to protect you. We've got to, you know, we can't have that happen. So he doesn't tell his father. In fact, it says in the next couple of verses, it kind of sneaks off. And then it comes to verse 4. It says, on each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to get up to this Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Bozes, the other Sina. That doesn't mean anything. But in Hebrew, that means one of them is slippery and the other is thorny. I just want to tell you, when you step out for God, it's not like, well, I finally stepped out for God. Man, this is really easy. Why didn't I do this earlier? No, you know what? Almost always there's some hill to climb, and they're not easy ones to go up. One's thorny, one's slippery. This is not just a little walk through the park. It's not a tour of the Holy Land, okay? I mean, they're going to have to do something really significant to get to this outpost. Pick up what it says there next. He says, come on, let's go over uh, to the outpost of these uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord... What do you mean, perhaps the Lord will be with us? The Lord will act on our behalf. Does perhaps sound like a great faith statement to you? Like, what do you mean, perhaps? Like, like I'm, 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 I'm with the evangelist. God is telling you, so step out of faith. Step out, you know, and you just disbelieve. You can receive, you know, and all that kind of stuff. No, 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 no. This is a perhaps. And I look at that and I go, what kind of faith is that? It's real faith. Because every faith step involves a perhaps. We don't know that God's going to do what he can do. I mean, if you knew it already, it's not faith to step out. Real faith always involves a perhaps. Don't you love Hebrews 11, the great faith chapter, where it talks about this one did this, and this one did this, and this one killed giants, this one had, you know, talks about Abraham and Sarah and the child that they believed for, and all these great acts of faith, and you read that chapter, and it's like so inspiring. Keep reading through the rest of the chapter. Because it says, by faith this happened, by faith this happened. You get to the end and it says, by faith this one had his head cut off. By faith this one stepped out with son and two. Like, I always wonder, did it go this way or this way? You know, like, does that sound like a great faith? You know, like God really, man, they stepped out and look at the answer to prayer on that one. Got head cut off, you know, hiding in you know, caves and stuff like that. But that's the same faith. We don't always know what the response is going to be. I love what he says. He says, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Here's what Jonathan knew. Jonathan knew God could. He just didn't know if he would. That's faith. Can he? Absolutely. Can he heal this person? Absolutely. Can he take care of these obstacles? Absolutely. Can he open the hearts of people that seem close to him? Absolutely. Does he always do that? No. But perhaps he will. 
And Jonathan wasn't about to stay hanging around without stepping out in faith to say, let's go get something going and not just wait here. Well, look at the rest of the passage here. This is so amazing. So his, his, his armor bearer says, do all that you have in mind. Go ahead. I am with you, heart and soul. We don't even know this guy's name, but I love what he says. Man, I'm with you, heart and soul. You got anybody like that? You got any cheerleaders on your team? You got any people that just, you know, they're just with you no matter what you do. They're like, man, I'm on your team. Count on me. I got prayer partners like that. I got some that are interceding right now. We're headed over to Lebanon. There's a whole group of Syrians who were supposed to come across the border. They were going to be denied. 60 people. They're the only ones. Who, who wants to meet anybody else? These are the guys that are in the trenches doing the work of God. And, and so I just contact my two prayer partners, and they just went after it. I mean, they just went after it. And we just got the answer to prayer a day and a half ago that, yep, border open for those guys. They're going to be in there, you know. I mean, they're just on my team, heart and soul. You got anybody like that in yours, in your life? Hey, let me ask you this. Are you that for anybody else? Are you that for anybody else? Is there somebody you're just watching doing great things for God? Have you ever gone up to him and just said, you know what, I believe in you. You can count on me. I'm going to pray for you every day. Dr. Wayne Schmidt's one of those people for me. Prays for me every day, every single day. Every time I go into whatever battle I go into, he's got my back. With me, heart and soul. Love that armor bearer. So what happens next? Look at this. Jonathan said, come on then, we will cross over toward them and let them see us. Say what? Like, this is a really dumb plan in my mind. Like, you know, we're going to let them see us? No, here's the plan, right? Two of us, one sword. There's 20 guys up there we find out later, right? So what you do is you sneak up behind the guy that's, you know, having a smoke or something, not paying attention, and, and you bonk him on the head, and you grab his sword. Now you got two swords, okay. Then you sneak up to the next one who's not paying attention. You bonk him on the head, three swords, because, you know, it's tucking an extra one in the back or whatever. You know, like, like this is a good plan. I have a good plan. Their plan is let them see us. Yeah, if they say to us, wait here until they come to you, we will stay where we are and not go up. But if they say, come on up to us, we'll climb up because that'll be our sure sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. Really? <laughs> like, I don't like this plan. So what do they do? Here it says, uh, so both of them showed themselves the Philistine outpost. I think Jonathan's doing this. Hey, here we are. And the armor bearer's going, hey, here we are, you know, <laughs> you know. I mean, at this point, if I was the armor bearer, I said, you know that whole heart and soul thing? From a distance. From a distance, I'm with you. You can count on me. I'll be watching. Like you're going to get slaughtered, but hey, I'm watching right, yeah, right behind you. Way behind you, you know? I mean, like, I, I, so it says, look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they were hiding in. <laughs> the men of the outpost shot at Jonathan and his armor, come up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. I don't want to learn that lesson. I don't think it's going to be a good teaching. I, you know, for whatever classes you're going to today, you might learn some things. I don't want to learn anything from the Philistines. They got a lot more weapons. They got, they're mean people. But that's what's going to happen. Look what it says next. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, climb up after me. You know anything about armor bearers? They only had one job. They went in front of the warrior. They went in front of the important people. They held up a big, huge shield so that when people shot arrows, they blocked them from getting, you know, hitting the soldier, the, the real guy here. And, and when they shuck a spear, you know, there's the... Here's the deal, though. The armor bearer doesn't have any armor. 
It's just a title because all of that had been stripped away. There's only two swords. Do you think they left the shields behind? Think they, you know, left other things behind? No, he doesn't have anything. And so Jonathan says, follow me. That's leadership. Somebody steps out first. You know, a lot of people talk about leadership, and you say, well, I'm not a leader. You know what a leader does? They go first. They just step out. It doesn't have to be a big drama. He doesn't say, listen, I'll go first. Follow me. You know, and, you know it's not a big production. He just says, come up after me. Takes the lead. Cares more about his armor bearer than he cares about himself. Climb up after me. The Lord's given them the hand of Israel. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet. Do you remember where they're going? Slippery and thorny. And they're on all fours going up. This is not a walk in the park. It's not just a you know, nice exit to take to get to this outpost. So his armor bearer is right behind him. And then here's the story. Philistines fell before Jonathan. His armor bearer followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan's armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about half an acre. Uh, Saul wakes up and realizes something's going on, trying to figure it all out. The Philistines are so confused by what's happening. They actually start destroying each other. The, the, the Israel army starts grabbing, picking up swords from people that are killing each other, you know, killing themselves, and, 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 take, and a great victory takes place. Two takeaways today. The first one is this. This whole thing of, of radical risk is all about faith. That's really what it is. Radical living is about faith. It's stepping out. It's doing something that maybe you're not totally comfortable with. It's just taking action to fulfill the purposes of God. That's what faith is. You can define it a lot of ways. It's just taking action to fulfill the purposes of God. It's not about singing about it. It's not about thinking about it. It's not about dreaming about it. It's about somehow doing something, stepping out and saying, you know what, I'm going to be in the game. I'm not going to sit back. I'm not going to wait for this to happen. I'm not going to see what happens. I'm going to get in the game and start making something happen. And here's the second thought. What if? What if Jonathan would have said, you know what, I'm going to wait till I've got a, a, a better plan. I'm going to wait for reinforcements. I'm going to wait till we have a better strategy. Like this idea that I have, I think it came from God. I'm not sure it was God. I don't think it was God. But anyway, you know, we, we need a better battle strategy. What, what if the armor bearer would have said, no, I'm not going with you. I can't do that. That's off limits. That's crazy. What are you thinking? What if they would have waited for the leader to lead? I mean, Saul's the king, right? This guy's just a prince. Saul's literally sitting under trees, it says in verse 3. What if they would have waited for anything else? I think Amber Livermore, a graduate from here, she's serving in New Zealand, just knocking the ball out of the park. What if she had said, oh, those people already know English. I mean, you know, they'll figure it out how to do youth ministry. Dave and Dina just went to a country that we're still not sure they're going to get visas in. Dave and Dina Scott, two of the most Honestly, um, introverted people I think I've ever seen together as a couple. So sold out. They did their presentation to my wife and I. We'd already decided we're going to support these guys, love them, they were on our team. Halfway through the presentation, we're so moved, my wife reaches over and squeezes my leg, which means we need to give more. I'm the giver in our family. My wife is usually the one saying, whoa time out you know we got to feed the kids and you know you know still buy groceries you know and but when she reaches over it's because God's moving and you know I'm sitting there and they're so compelling we have to go is what they said that's why we have to go 
stepping into a crazy world. What if the people that work down at Shepherd down in Indianapolis said, well, you know what, we're not going to help these people. God helps those who help themselves. You know, let, let, let them figure it out themselves. What, what if Alejandro would have said, I don't care if my heart went to Mexico City. I'm not going. I lived there before. That was destruction. That was a jungle, he called it. What if he would have said, I'm not doing it. I like where I live right now. I mean, I'm happy to move from here if it's further down the coast to another nice city. You know, I mean, I, I, I want that kind of peace. What if he would have said, no, we wouldn't have a church in Mexico City that's now planting churches. They sent out 80 people last year to start a new church, and they're exploring two different states where there are relatively no churches to see if maybe God's moving in that. What if somebody hadn't prayed for you? What if somebody hadn't shared with you? What if somebody would have just not stepped out? In my own life, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I started going to church, a Wesleyan church in Battle Creek, because it was a free date, literally. It was a free date. My parents would only let me date twice a week. They didn't count church. Woohoo! I'm going to church. After about five months of hearing that God loved me, I never knew that. Some people had shared the whole plan of salvation. I didn't know that I could be forgiven, that I could be cleansed. I was so full of guilt in my life. There was one Sunday night where they gave an altar call. The two people I was sitting with went forward. I didn't know it until later that they went down to pray for me. And I stood there and I hung on. at had a pew in that church. I hung on to that pew for all I was worth. And I wanted to go down so bad and I didn't want to go down and ever in my life. And there was a battle raging on in my life. And a young man came over to me, he was a Youth for Christ worker, and just touched my arm and said, would you like to go forward and receive Christ? And I did. And it totally changed my life. And I've asked myself so many times, his name was Gary, what if Gary hadn't done that? What if he'd have looked over at me and would have said, you know, teens are so troubled, look at that kid, he's a mess. God, I hope he gets it together. What if he would have looked over and said, man, I'm going to see if I can talk to him afterwards. He looks kind of troubled. What if he would have said, you know, I'm going to really pray for that young man. He needs prayers. Oh, because I look like I need prayers. I did need prayers. And what if he would have done that? What if he would have obeyed the pastor? Because the pastor said, every eye closed, no one looking around, you know? Like, and Gary was looking. To my dying day, I believe that if I hadn't received Christ that night, I would have walked out of that because I was at a crossroads and I was going to go one way or the other. What if Gary hadn't come? What's holding you back? I had an incredible prayer partner. His name is Don. Uh, here's a picture of his family. Um, Don and his wife adopted these five African-American brothers and sisters. They're siblings. Um, same mom, I think, different dads for every one of them. Don's kind of a crazy guy. He prays for every missionary in Europe, every missionary in Turkey, Arabic world. MS, heart problems, uh, 46 years old. And um, every Sunday morning, he would get up and meet with a group of guys who had train wrecked their lives and their marriages to try to restore them and, and bring them back to Christ. He would finish that group, and then he had a prayer group. He'd finish that. He taught Sunday school. He finished that. He said, by the time I got to the church service, I, could, I couldn't even write to take notes, and he's an avid student of the Word because his MS would just kind of cripple him down. People would come to Don all the time, and they'd say things like, Don, you're going to burn out. And he said, I always wanted to say, holy smoke. <laughs> <laughs> I 
And then he made this statement to me when he was writing to me. He said, I sometimes wonder if people have a shelf full of mason jars that they're saving their life in for someday in the future. And I couldn't get past that illustration of just this mason jar. You know, they come in all sizes. There's bigger ones than this, the medium, little cute ones, and this really cute one that's, I don't know, it's supposed to be a salt shaker, but it doesn't have holes. I don't know. And how easy it is to store your life for some day when you're going to do something. When I graduate, when I get married, when I, when, I, when I finally pay off my school loans, when I, you know, then I'm going to do something great for God. And we stuff things in these jars. You know, I, I, I just, I thought, you know what, we put fear inside of the jar and just say, you know, I'd like to do that, but I'm, I'm just really afraid to do that. I, I wrote down these. Well, you know what, I'm just ordinary. Hey, look around the room. There's a couple of real standouts. Most of us are pretty ordinary. You know, I'm inadequate. I don't, I don't have the gifts and skills. And you start comparing yourself to everybody else. I'm not ready. When are you going to be ready? Like, you only get one life, right? You, you, if you understood that, you only get one life. When are you going to be serious about this? When are you going to dive in? Here's another one. I, I wasn't even thinking of this. But sometimes it's a relationship that we put in the jar and it holds us back. A relationship I want to have, a relationship I do have, a relationship I shouldn't have. Over here, I just, I, I wrote, you know, I kind of want to have a comfortable life. The, the computer split it out and put able on the bottom, comfort and then able. Yeah, I just want to be able to be comfortable. I just want to kind of have it my way. I don't really want to live a life that has so much passion, so much focus. I have my plans. Kind of mapped it out. You know, like I... I know a lot of people don't know what they're doing. I know what I'm doing. I know where I'm going. I know what I'm going to accomplish. I know what my life is going to look like. I already have it kind of written down. I know what it's going to look like. Sometimes it's sin. And the Holy Spirit's faithful to remind you right now if there's a sin issue in your life that's holding you back, that you've kept in the jar. And maybe you keep that night and tight and closed and nobody you think knows about it. Put two things in this jar. It's just one is surrender, the other one's control. Because we really don't want to surrender. There's a red line through that. And we really do want to control our lives and decide the destiny of where we go. It's time to face off with some of these things. I, I, I don't know what it is for you. But let me just tell you, it's not just about acknowledging it. It's not even just saying, you know what, I don't want it to be in the jar anymore. You know what the real problem is? It isn't even what goes in these. Those are issues. But what really is the big problem is we got jars that we're storing, or that we're controlling, that we're taking. And, and you know what, we, it's not enough to just pull it out and say, I'm not going to live by fear anymore. You know what we got to do? We got to break the jar. We can't just say, well, you know what? I'm not going to let inadequacy and, and being ordinary hold me back anymore. You know, I'm going to pull that out, you know. But you know what? As long as you have a jar, you're going to end up putting something in that jar. 
You're going to end up with something that's going to control your life, something that's going to keep you from following God. And as long as you say, you know what, I'll take it out. I don't want to be, oh, I'm not going to be comfortable. I'm not going to be one of those kind of people. But as long as you have a jar, there's always space to put it in. Because you know what the jar is? It's you controlling your life. And you know what? As long as you're trying to control your life, you'll never break the jar. As long as it's about your plans, they make these things really strong and well. That one will break. As long as you hold out. As long as there's a space for you to put something in. The people who really follow God decide that Nothing, nothing, nothing will hold them back. You can store your life. You can be limited by all these things. You can be held back by all these things. You can say, well, you know, for me, it's just a little jar, you know. I mean, it's, it's just a little jar, you know. I mean, hardly anybody even knows. I mean, you can't even really see that if I hold my arm right there, you know. And, and it's just, I, I mean, you know what, I, it's just one relationship that I'm holding on to. It's just one, it's just one little, little sin that I'm holding on to. I, I, I mean, I, I've said, God, do whatever you want to do. But I, I do have a couple plans I really want to see happen. As long as you do that. You'll never live a life by faith. Wherever I go, whenever I speak, I give the same challenge at the end. Doctors inspire people to be doctors. Teachers inspire people to be teachers. Carpenters inspire people to be carpenters. Plumbers inspire people to be carpenters. Nurses, you, you name it. This is Missions Fest. And we're inspiring you to give your life completely over, to say, I'll go, like we just sang, wherever you send me. I'll do whatever you ask me to do, because it's not about me. My jar's broken. All I care about is you.